The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him about whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said of him, Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, Where did you get to know me? Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Holy Trinity, one God. Amen. As I was preparing uh, to preach this Sunday, I came across a website that had this prayer on it, and it seems to be very fitting for the times in which we live. Oh God, you have never left us without a witness of yourself. In every generation and in every situation, you have given us light for the darkness. I don't know about you, but as I think about uh, this weekend and the days that are ahead of us, uh, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, birthday observed tomorrow and then the inauguration on the next day, this seems like such a convergence. And it's also a convergence at a very strange time in the life of our nation. We're at war in two different places. We are facing economic times that are more difficult than anyone has seen since the Great Depression. And now, in the midst of all of that, we're going to change administrations. It just seems like so much at once. And I find myself excited on the one hand and very optimistic about what the future might hold for us, while at the same time very concerned about where we find ourselves as a nation. I think that prayer... Uh, speaks to that, for me at least. But I think it would also have been a prayer that would have applied well to the time that uh, Samuel receives this word from God in the night. Because it was during that time that the priesthood was pretty corrupt. The priesthood in Israel was inherited. And Eli, the old priest in this particular account, has two sons. And they're going to inherit the priesthood unless something happens, unless God in some way intervenes. And these two sons have blasphemed, and worse yet, uh, perhaps in the the mind of God, Eli doesn't stop them. And they've been quite a disgrace in Israel. And because of that, there's something that has to be done, it seems, in order to stop this priesthood from continuing. So this occurs in a time of the corruption of the priesthood, 
Uh, it's before Jerusalem is the center of government and of religion in, in Israel. The Ark of the Covenant is the focus of, of worship for Israel at this point at a place called Shiloh. Now, Samuel is a young boy, according to tradition, perhaps no more than 12 years old. And he is dedicated to God by his mother, who has prayed for a boy. And she finally has a boy, and she sets him aside for God. And, and the way she does that is by going to Eli and asking Eli to take him as an apprentice, to work with him at, at, around these holy objects and in this holy place of Israel. Now, the night in which uh, Samuel hears the voice of God, the imagery of it is very vivid. Samuel is sleeping near the Ark of the Covenant, and yet it says that he had not yet really heard and, and been connected to God in a strong way. He had not heard the word of God, hadn't been integrated into his being, apparently. But yet he seems to be drawing close to God as he sleeps close to the Ark of the Covenant. And this passage also says that the lamp of God had not gone out. It is as though God also has business that night and is going to be there with Samuel. Now, Samuel hears a voice in the night and he goes thinking that Eli had called him. He goes to Eli and asks if he had called and Eli tells him to go back and go to sleep. This happens twice. And then the third time when he comes to Eli, Eli finally thinks perhaps this is the voice of God. Perhaps he's being spoken to. So he advises uh, Samuel to go back and lie down again. And if he hears the voice again, he is to say that I am your servant and I am here to listen. Well, the voice does come to Samuel now a fourth time. And he goes to Eli reluctantly in the morning with a message that's very difficult for him to carry. Now, one of the things that I find very encouraging in this passage is that Samuel, who was so great in the story of salvation and of Israel's history, Samuel had to hear the voice of God four times. It shouldn't be at all surprising that some of us have to hear the voice of God many, many, many times in order to really get the message. So I find that very encouraging. But the message that's given to Samuel is a hard one indeed. Now, just imagine, this is a 12-year-old apprentice who believes that he has heard God speak to him and say that you must go and tell Eli, the old priest who is revered in Israel, you must go and tell him, the one who is your mentor, that his house is condemned, that his children will not become priests of Israel, and that they have acted in such a blasphemous way that they must not become priests. And God even goes on to say, you tell him this, that no matter how many sacrifices or how many offerings, this will not change. It's hard to believe that a boy of 12 could carry such a message to someone so revered, to someone who is a mentor, so much older, with so much more prestige. And yet, it's the scripture says that he does. Well, as I thought about this passage, I found myself being stirred up in many different ways about the whole question of call and about hearing God's voice in our life. 
And I was taken back to uh, a situation where when I was in South Dakota as a member of the Commission on Ministry. And many of you know the Commission on Ministry is that commission in each diocese that is responsible for interviewing those who believe they're called for some sort of ordained ministry. And it also, that commission administers that ordination process. Well, we had interviewed a number of people in the time that I was a part of that. But I remember one in particular, a man in his early 40s, uh, who was, uh, uh, who sold, uh, he was a nurse, actually, but he, he worked for a pharmaceutical company, and he sold pharmaceutical supplies uh, to the small hospitals and clinics across northern South Dakota. Northern South Dakota is about as desolate a place as you'd ever want to go to. You wouldn't want to go there, really. <laughs> it's awful up there, I think. And he was, he's, he, we asked him the question, as we did all of those who came before us, what is it that makes you believe that you are called to ordain ministry? And he said, without hesitation, I was driving along... I think it's Highway 81, but it's, it's a highway that goes all along the northern part of South Dakota. There is nothing up there. You could see visions of all sorts of things, but you wouldn't see much else. <laughs> I was driving along Highway whatever, and he said I was between Aberdeen and Mobridge. And he said, I heard God speak to me and say that I should seek ordination in the Episcopal Church. Well, we had never heard that answer before. <laughs> and as you can imagine, there were some follow-on questions. You mean you heard audibly God speak to you? Yes. Yes, I heard God speak. Well, we had to regroup as a commission after he left. <laughs> and we started to talk about what does it mean to be called? Is it possible that somebody could actually hear audibly God speak to them? That commission decided they weren't ready to affirm that yet. So he didn't get affirmed at that particular meeting, and he was not made a postulant that time. But he eventually was. And as I've come to know him, he's now a priest out in the Black Hills, a very faithful one, a wonderful priest. I believe he did hear God speak to him. I think for him it was an audible an audible expression from God in some way as he was driving out on that lonely stretch of highway between Aberdeen and Mobridge. Well, that is one way, perhaps, that people hear God, but it also makes me wonder, what about all the other people who are acting out in some way that is for the good of all? People who perhaps have heard God speak to them, but don't even realize that that's happened to them. And I think that there are many examples of that that we find in our workplaces. I think we find it, you may find it in your own life, in what you do, in the vocation that you have been called to, that suddenly in a moment during the day you find yourself being moved to do something that really takes you out of your usual way of doing business. And you stop for a moment, you reach out to somebody who really needs your attention, you go the extra mile for somewhat, someone who really needs your help, and you may not even know why. I believe that that also is God speaking to us if we're attentive enough to hear it. Tomorrow, we will observe the birthday of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., 
I think it's important for us not to forget that he was a minister of the Church of God. He was someone of faith, and you can't read any of his writings without recognizing that. So sometimes I'm troubled when we only hear it's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It's the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. He was a man of faith. And in 1954, he was called to the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. Now, that church is located in such a way that you can see the state capitol from the church. That capitol is the place where Jefferson Davis was inaugurated as the first president of the Confederacy. It's also the place from which the Confederate flag first flew officially. And one can imagine that in 1954, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. must have wondered, where has God led me? Why does God bring me here to the cradle of the Confederacy, to this place that represents in so many ways all that is wrong with what's happened to my people? Why has God led me here? I'm sure that that question must have been in his mind and nights as he woke up and thought about all the awful things that were going on in the South at that time. So I believe he was being prompted in some way, brought to a place for a reason he perhaps did not know why, but God was acting in his life. Now, that was 1954 in Montgomery. In the winter of 1955, I think it was the 1st of December, the young Rosa Parks was leaving her job at the Montgomery Park department store where she was a seamstress. And one can imagine that she had had a long day at work and she was perhaps very relieved to get on that city bus and sit down and rest. And she was on her way home. Now, the thing that I didn't know until I read about her this past week was that she sat in the, the very first seat of the colored section. So she was she was uh, being respectful of the understanding of of how things were supposed to be done in this time of separation of whites and blacks. But the other thing that that was important uh, to know is that the rules were that if the bus got full, then um, a black person sitting at the front of the colored section in those first seats would get up and offer their seat to a white person getting on the bus and the black person would stand. Well, for whatever reason, that particular day, Rosa Parks decided to stay seated. And I've often wondered what it was that motivated her. I wonder if she heard that still small voice of God affirm in her that she was someone of worth and of value as much as anyone else getting on that bus, that she was a person of dignity, that she was a person of worth. I wonder if any part of that gave her a sense of any awareness of the fact that she was the spark of what would become that incredible movement, the civil rights movement in this country, which would so change the course of history. I wonder if she had any sense that God was speaking to her that afternoon as she was tired, sitting on the bus, and decided not to move. 
there's a story about Dick Gregory, and I'm sure many of you uh, know of Dick Gregory. He, he's perhaps been on more uh, hunger fasts than anyone I've ever heard of, a comedian, but also very active uh, civil rights worker. Uh, he launched a publicity stunt in Chicago, uh, and the, the stunt was that uh, he would uh, produce $1 bills. I think he was running for president at the time. He decided he could run for president as, as well as anyone else. So he produced some $1 bills with his face on the dollar bill. Well, these dollar bills somehow got into circulation. So there was a great deal of concern on the part of the federal government. They had to get these dollar bills together and get them out of circulation. He didn't get prosecuted for it, but later he joked about it. And he said, the bills couldn't really be considered U.S. currency because everyone knows a black man will never be on a U.S. bill. I hope Dick Gregory remembers that joke that he made on Tuesday. Because perhaps, who knows, we may see a black man on the face of a U.S. bill. We have come, I believe, a long way as a country. And we have come a long way as people who are dealing with differences, with people who are different from us. And I think that that's reflected in what will happen on Tuesday. And that is very encouraging. I think that is a source of great hope for us to realize that we no longer have to define ourselves by our differences and we no longer have to use our differences as a source for hate. Perhaps we are a different people. And when I think about how short a time all of that has happened in, it's just almost unbelievable that this could happen in less than a lifetime, that we could change that much. And so I think we are standing on the cusp of a very, a very important two-day period. Tomorrow we will observe the birthday, the legacy, the life of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. And we will also be preparing for the day that follows, for that day when Barack Obama becomes our president. Now, preaching as only he could do, Martin stood on the mall in 1963 and he proclaimed something that he called the dream. But I would guess that he could not even dream of what is going to happen day after tomorrow. On the other end of that same mall, I believe we have been transformed. And I think we've been transformed because people in one moment, in one instant, could hear God speaking to them and inviting them to enter into something that was beyond their imagination. It wasn't easy. It was no more easy than that message that young uh, Samuel had to take to his mentor, Eli. But they were willing to do it. This morning, we have the great privilege of baptizing Braden Austin Quayle. In spite of the snow, and I'm sure because of that, this will be a memorable baptism for all of you. But I think as we uh, look at Braden, we see, of course, that miracle of God that is just so mysterious, I think, for all of us who have been parents, grandparents, relatives, anyone close, and realizing this miracle of birth. 
And when we look at Braden, we see, along with the other children in this church, that uh, that spark of hope, which is uh, just full of potential. I think the challenge for us is to realize that we have a responsibility to Braden and to all those children so that we leave a world that is better for them, perhaps, in the world that we have right now. And I think a part of that is being attentive to the call of God in our lives, to listen, to really listen to where God is calling us to act and to make a difference. And so I take hope in this prayer. Oh God, you have never left us without a witness of yourself. In every generation and in every situation, you have given us light for the darkness. Amen.